Hi, everybody. This is Jim Dethmer with the Conscious Leadership Group. And this month I'm flying solo because my partner and fellow troublemaker, Diana Chapman, is out uh, raising a rumpus someplace in the world, teaching some people about conscious leadership. So today I'm alone, but not totally alone because I'm actually here with one of my good buddies and pals in the world, Lola Wright. And Lola and I are going to have a conversation about conscious leadership. So hi there, Lola. Hi, Jim. Grateful to be here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lola really is a dear friend. Uh, our lives have crossed paths in many ways and in many dimensions. So I'm looking forward to just having a chit-chat with a pal about what conscious leadership looks like in our lives. So, Lola, uh, the way we like to start is for you to just give people a little bit of a sense of kind of who you are, you know, uh, what, are you, what are you doing in the world and how did you get to be doing what you're doing in the world so they can maybe give us a sense of how to understand you and how you're applying conscious leadership in the world. So what are you up to? What are you doing? Well, currently, I am the spiritual director of a transdenominational or a non-religious spiritual center in Chicago called Bodhi Spiritual Center. I was a member there for 10 years before joining the staff. I love what I get to do. We offer classes, workshops, special events, incredible Sunday celebration services, and we appeal to people who are looking for community and perhaps spiritual community, but something that transcends uh, religious order. And so it's a very cool community, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. What I did prior to that was very different. I spent um, about 17 years in some version of banking and or real estate. So I started with First Chicago NBD, which later became Bank One and is now Chase. I also spent a number of years at what used to be Donaldson, Luskin, and Genrette, then became Credit Suisse First Boston, now is Credit Suisse. I spent a number of years at small private equity firms and a couple big real estate brokerage houses. So uh, I sort of got to do this work covertly in those environments and get to do it more explicitly where I am now, but um, just love the conversation of the 15 commitments. <laughs> yeah, well, boy, I could just pause and have you kind of um... – unpack words like transdenominational and <laughs> non-religious spiritual center. To me, those are words filled with fascinating possibilities. And in fairness for everybody to know, um, when Debbie, my wife and I moved from the suburbs of Chicago to downtown Chicago, we were looking around for people who wanted to practice consciousness and uh, to form a community in the city. And it was actually through a massage therapist, wow, over 10 years ago now, who said, hey, you ought to check out this place. Uh, it wasn't called this then, but Bodhi Spiritual Center. So uh, Deb and I went over there and checked it out and found it to be filled with a bunch of people who love what we love in the world, like authentic conversations and transparency and vulnerability and meditation. And, uh, and the more we hung out and got involved, the more we saw as well that that center was deeply, deeply committed to the whole subject of transformational leadership or conscious leadership or authentic uh, spiritual leadership in the world. So uh, Lola and I, in addition to hanging out other places, have hung out in that community. And now she's uh, running the deal. So pretty, what pretty I love wonderful. About, what I love about that is, you know, we have eight spiritual practices 
But the eighth, you really brought to Bodhi. We, you know, our practices are sacred service, uh, giving and receiving, gratitude, prayer, meditation, visioning, forgiveness. And one that was sort of in the background was this idea of leadership. And when you were involved at Bodhi, you brought it forward. And what we call conscious leadership at Bodhi is spirit-centered leadership. But it, it has become increasingly more valuable because we're really a community of people that want to um, stop outsourcing their power and authority and step more boldly into knowing themselves as a leader, which, you know, in the spirit of the first commitment, taking full responsibility, uh, it reminds me of um, when when someone first starts going to a 12-step meeting, and I, I know that my older children's father, he said the day that he got sober was the best and worst day of his life. He actually had to, he could never enjoy drinking the same way again because he had actually stepped into taking responsibility for this idea of his life. And um, some some days that's easy and some days it's not as easy. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, and one of the things I'm excited about uh, in this conversation is I think up to this point, all the leaders that we've had on this have been people who are leading in, you know, commercial enterprises, and some of them very large, and some of them small, some of them startups, some tech, some healthcare, all over the place. And I'm excited to have Lola because Lola's operated in a different realm, uh, in the not-for-profit and actually in the realm of community and spiritual community. And I think that's really cool because a lot of people who are applying these things are doing it in the kind of venues that Lola is. So I really want to honor that and get after that a little bit. Okay, yeah. so Lola, how did you uh, first come about, uh, come across, you know, the 15 commitments and how to, what was your kind of on-ramp? Where did you start to get interested, think about, learn about, and just tell the story of it a little bit. And it could have happened over a period of months or even years, but mm -hmm. how did you find your way to this conversation? Well, I would say what first occurred was I found my way to Jim Desmer. And I think it's such a testament to the way one bees in the world, one's <laughs> beingness, um, more so than one's doingness is incredibly attractive or repelling, right? So my memory is there was this guy, Jim Desmer, who was very involved at Bodhi. And I was very attracted to knowing more and more about who you were and what you were up to in the world. And so then the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, came out. And um, I was looking for a way to take esoteric conceptual ideas and get them into greater practice with the people that I was leading with at Bodhi. And it seemed to me that there were some really great tools that were coming out of the book that were incredibly powerful and really like um, in very accessible language. That was, that was how the 15 commitments occurred to me. And then, you know, sort of reacquainted with you and got clear on the work that you're doing, joined one of your forums, had an incredible experience of a year-long forum practice. Um, and that, you know, f for me being, in some ways, there's a lot of this work that I get to do in a, you know, different but similar way at Bodhi. But to be among peers in a forum context where we got to practice the work together was incredibly valuable 
for me. And we've just bring, been bringing it, bringing the commitments into the fold more and more at Bodhi. And, you know, the more people that I can have actively engaged in the work of the 15 commitments, the easier I find it to be to practice because we're mm-hmm. practicing consciously together. Yeah, it's so cool. You know, we say that to people all the time. If, you know, it's it's one thing to read the book. It's another thing to even begin to practice on your own. If you want to really catalyze your experience of waking up and becoming conscious and becoming a conscious leader, to get in relationship with a handful of other people who are, you know, co-practitioners is really gets it going. It's just an absolute blast. So, you know, I'm thinking as we talk about a spiritual community, I remember Pete Drucker said once that the greatest leaders in the world are leading not-for-profits and they're leading places where people are volunteering to be part of what's going on. And you do have, you know, paid staff members and teams at Bodie, and we'll talk about that, but, you know, you've got a volunteer group of people, you know, they, they're not there to get a paycheck. They're not there to, you can't hire and fire most of them. So you're practicing conscious leadership in what Drucker called the most difficult space of all. So mm. talk a little bit about how, how do the 15 commitments show up at Bodhi? And, and you can talk about how they show up with you and your fellow staff members or how they show up in, uh, you know, various aspects of the community. But how do they become real at Bodhi? I remember the first uh, meeting of my forum last year, whenever it was, and you said, most of you here, uh, a hero all over the place. And I remember (laughs) sitting in that gathering and thinking, oh, I can appreciate that. And (laughs) thinking that has nothing to do with me. (laughs) And over the last year in particular, I have become painfully aware of how I hero all over the place. I over-function, and in a nonprofit environment, it is it it, it can be a setup for that. So um, I have really had to practice. Um, I'll, I'll just speak for me individually first. I have really had to practice my own. Um, yes, and my own no, and that is a constant practice. I have a tendency to say yes to things, and then uh, I'll do them because I'm I have a, a high level of integrity, and then I have to watch: Am I violating my integrity by continuing to do something that no longer is in alignment with with what feels good in here? So I would say that that's that's one, and and really like spiritual communities can attract that, you know, this, this <laughs> overgiving spirit, this over-functioning spirit. And so I think that's for sure a way that we get to practice at Bodhi. Um, you know, yeah. So, so before you go on, I yeah. want to probe that one with you a little bit. So here you are, you're running a spiritual community. Um, Lola for our listeners is a powerful human being. She has clarity of vision, clarity of purpose. She has certainty, directionality, courage, strength. She's a person that people can easily want to be heroed by. So you're over there doing your work and uh, changing the world around you in Chicago and beyond. And all of a sudden you start to go, 
wow, I'm heroing people. I'm over-functioning. Mm-hmm. I'm taking more than my fair share of responsibility. And you start to face that and start mm-hmm. to make choices based on that. I, I don't imagine that was simple and easy. I can even think that that might have you know, caused some turbulence or some messes or some, <laughs> some issues in a relationship if all of a sudden you start saying, hey, I don't want to over-function anymore. I want to take just my 100% responsibility. So what was it like for you to face that? And what was it like for people around you as you faced that? Well, it completely upsets the apple cart. Um, And and much of our staff arrangements and agreements have had to shift as a result because – it's not, it's just not, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work for me to be spinning as many plates as I'm spinning and to be catching others' plates. And I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it's just not, it doesn't work. It, it, what ends up happening is I feel noble at the beginning and then I get really uh, pissed at the end. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then there's this wondering like, what's her problem? And it's like, I completely have created this environment where, and it's not, it's all of a sudden I see it, I saw it and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. It's, it's in relationship with my 16 year old son. It's in real, I mean, it's Uh, everywhere. And, um, it's just, I don't know. It's a constant practice for me to discern when am I being generous and when am I heroing? Like that's a, there's a distinction there and I don't always catch it until I'm knee deep and I'm like, oh man, here we are again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love what you said because, you know, my experience, because I'm a lifelong heroer, um, (laughs) is that anytime I step on that hero base, it's an IOU for future resentment. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a matter of time until I yeah. swing off of hero and on to villain and start resenting people for not appreciating me or not carrying their weight or all the while, just like you said, I set the whole racket up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you realize that, what do you do? Do you go have like frank conversations with people? Do you call the game? Do you say, hey, I've set this up and I'm over-functioning and I want to you know, you ratchet back to my hundred percent responsibility. And I want you to step forward. Is that, is it just a practical conversation? What do you do? I mean, some of it has been, you know, clearing conversations. So really pausing and going, hang on a second. How have you created this? Not from a place of self-punishment, but from a place of like curiosity and responsibility and then getting in communication with the people that are, as we would say, in collusion with me around that. Um, And then the other thing is, like in the first quarter of this year, I've really been looking at all of the staff agreements and and all of our volunteer agreements and, and, and having some, you know, quote unquote, difficult conversations. But what I find is that they're actually liberating conversations because whether people are aware of it or not consciously aware of it, but on some level, it's like something's not feeling right here. And so it can usually when I have these conversations, it's like, oh, thank God, everybody's like, I knew something was going on, but I I didn't know quite what it was. So, you know, the thinking in advance of having those conversations is usually more painful than the conversations are themselves. Uh, 
Yeah, so love it. So you mentioned clearing conversations, which Commitment 5 is all about choosing to go direct to people instead of gossiping. And the tool in Commitment Number 5 is to have a clearing conversation. So let's talk about that a little bit. Is that something you actually do in life? I know, but I want you to answer. Yeah. And if so, kind of what's that like? Uh, to move through life having clearing conversations. Again, for those of you who don't know, a clearing conversation is actually pretty simple. From above the line, it's getting clear about your positive intention for the relationship and then going to another person and revealing yourself. And what you reveal are your feelings about the situation or the issue, the facts, what a video camera would record, your stories about them or the situation, and what it is you most deeply want. So it's a practice of getting here, getting real with other human beings. And I know it's something that you guys uh, you know, do and experiment with and learn about and grow. So could you just talk a little bit about clearing conversations, what they're really like in your life, and do they really work? Do they, <laughs> do they yeah. blow up kind of? Well, first of all, my husband Nathan and I use them on a regular basis, and they're extremely helpful. And it really helps. It's a it's a very useful guide to to start to dissect the facts of what occurred, as you say, that which would be caught on camera, versus the story that we've mapped on to the facts. And so, I would just say, number one, using it in my marriage has been transformational. Um, using it with board members has been incredible. You know, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, and I remember a number of years ago, Jim, you said to me, Lola, my desire for you is that as you continue to grow and develop into this incredible leader, that um, you still hear that whisper in your ear to maintain your vulnerability or to allow for your vulnerability. <laughs> and the Clearing Conversation is a great portal for me to doing that. Um, I have done clearing conversations from above the line where, you know, there's a lot of spaciousness and I've done clearing conversations from below the line and the clearing conversations that I have from below the line are magical and, for me and the clearing conversations that I have from below the line are usually a step in the right direction. But again, that's still like eh, something's a little off here. There's never, there's never, in my experience, there's never a downside, even when I've cleared from below the line, because I still, I, I can, I can feel, I can use my gut and my intuition to be like, yeah, Lola, something's not right here, because your experience is that when you have clearing conversations with staff, with board members, with community members from above the line, there's a spaciousness and you're not getting that here. So, you know, it's sort of like our bodies, in my experience, are these tuning forks, and they're always informing us as to, like, you know, for me, what's going on. The clearing conversation is the portal to um, sharing that in relationship to another. And, you know, we ha we have practiced it at Bodhi, uh, both from a staff perspective, from a board perspective, and from a community perspective. I had a community member call me a couple weeks ago and said, I'd really love to clear with you. Could we have coffee? Mm -hmm. And I said, great. And, you know, I, sure, there was a little bit of a swirl in my stomach, some butterflies, like, oh, gosh, what did I do? What did I do? Um, and it's like, just breathe. You know what? Like, just breathe. Be a loving presence. And we had coffee. And she did this incredible clearing with me, and she was super freed up by it, and I was more deeply connected to her, and it was a very powerful experience. 
So I, I, I mean, I know, I mean, I do a lot of couples sessions and I love it. It's my most favorite work. And I use, I've used the clearing model a lot and I could do a one hour or an hour and a half session just using the clearing model. And when I've done that with couples, it's like a whole new world opens up. So I'm a huge fan. I love it. So let me grab another thread that you brought up there because uh, in my experience, Lola has a huge heart. She's got wickedly smart IQ and powerful BQ, body intelligence, and a huge heart. And so I want to talk a little bit about commitment three and feeling your feelings all the way through to completion. And kind of what is that like for you, especially what does it look like to feel feelings from above the line versus from below the line, you know, where the feelings kind of got us or we're mad at somebody or we're in our righteousness? Because having been with you in groups, I've watched you move big feelings through your body in deeply powerful and authentic ways. So can you just talk about that a little bit, your relationship with this idea of feeling feelings all the way through to completion? Yeah, well, I would say I have loads of experience of feeling feelings from below the line. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the great <laughs> distinction for me is that one leaves me with a hangover and the other does not. Like, very, very simply stated. So, um, you know, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll just say, like, a week or two ago, I called your partner in crime, Diana Chapman, and mm -hmm. was, you know, moving some stuff with her. And this was the first time that I really watched myself. I was breathing in my conversation mm. with her in a completely distinct way. And I was like, Ooh. I was like, okay, you know, and I was, I was somatically having an experience of my feelings, uh, not in such a way that it took me into a trance. Like there was this capacity that I was experiencing where there was, there were feeling sensations going, moving through me and something as subtle as using my breath and using my voice free of words in the mm. process was super powerful. So that would be one recent experience. I also had an experience with a, with a coworker at Bodhi where there was a project that hadn't been, um, it was like a marketing piece that hadn't, was not executed as I intended. And um, there was a very, very short timeline between when it was being used at an event and, and the moment that I was delivered it. And um, I very clearly, like, I took a moment, got clear, went in and said, I need this handled. Uh, this is what I want. Da, 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 da. And the person, I could feel the person was sort of triggered by my my uh, presence. There was There was definitely a clarity that walked into the space. And he said, I don't like your reactivity. I said, I'm not here to talk about my reactivity. I'm here to talk about what needs to happen. And it was like, you know, without being there, it might seem like I don't get it. But for me, it was so different. Like, wow. I did not jump on the triangle with this person about me being wrong and how I'm showing up. It was just like, hey, I'm actually up to creating something that's different than, than that dance because we've done that dance a million times. Um, but it was a way that I, I don't know, like, 
I don't know if it was anger, but there was like a fierceness that just felt right in my body. And I didn't walk away from that exchange, like replaying it a million times, wondering if I'd just been the biggest jerk on the planet, which I've done many times before, you know, like where I'm just sort of wondering, 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 was that unreasonable? You know, and I actually think that that's one of the things that can be um, the greatest value in finding community in this work is that when you're practicing, uh, you know, it's like anything you're new at. When I work out with a personal trainer, I can have an idea that my form is right and in, in strong alignment but they can see something that I may not see. And so they're constantly adjusting and tweaking. And I'm grateful for that. The same is true of this community for me. It's like, um, it's a, you know, just to have practice friends that can, mm-hmm. can mirror. And, you know, I, I usually am afraid that I'm way more mean than I, than I am. And so for me, the feedback has been, hey, what would it be like to honor your clarity and to honor your judgment rather than making your judgment wrong, see it as a gift. And when I can start to, and this is, I mean, probably one of my favorite commitments is, would you be willing to consider that the opposite of your story is as true or truer than your story? You know, commitment number 10, I commit to seeing that the opposite of my story is true or truer. And for me, like, you know, if I have this idea of myself as abrupt, aggressive, too assertive, mean, unkind, and I spend so much energy managing that, then oftentimes what happens is it comes out sideways and I become the very thing I don't want to be versus just being okay with who I am and how I am and actually trusting that that judgment or uh, as Tim Peake would say, Lola, you're one of the most uh, reactive, judgmental people I know. What if you considered that a gift? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's like a game changer for my life. You mean I'm not like inherently broken and wrong? Yeah. So that's Oh, I huge. love that. Uh, so much in those couple of sentences that you just said. You know, like with the fellow staff worker, what I hear is just clean anger. Mm-hmm. Clean anger from above the line just says no. It sets yeah. a boundary. It doesn't make anybody wrong or bad. It doesn't blame or guilt anybody. So you say, no, I'm not here to talk about reactivity right now. I'm here to move this forward. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of residue, not a lot of dead bodies around, just clean anger mm-hmm. that sets a boundary. And the other thing you're bringing up is, I know this about you, you know, we talk about personas and finding the personas that are running our rackets. And, you know, your belief about Mimi has been one of them. And Mm -hmm. Lola has always had this thought that she's, if she really gets free and gets authentic, she's just going to like decimate the planet with her meanness. And (laughs) the community around her has said, give it to us, give us, give it what you got, be authentic. And I think the reflection that has come back to you pretty consistently is what you think is mean, by and large, there have been a couple of exceptions, I imagine, Mm -hmm. but by and large, has been experienced as clarity and Mm -hmm. directionality and, you know, loving pressure, that which the coach and the challenger bring. So you've experimented with unwinding some of your personas around this and getting more and more powerful and free. 
One hundred percent. And I, I would love to know, like, what I mean. Do, are you in agreement? This idea of you know when we have these parts of ourselves that we that we suppress in an effort to not allow them to be authentically there, that in fact, oftentimes we exacerbate them. Like, in fact, they do come out sideways because we have not liberated them. And then we just create a mess that we were trying to avoid in the first place. That's exactly right. You know, uh, Diana taught us all the phraseology of Xing parts of ourself out, like taking a part of ourself that we can't love and accept and like throwing it in the cellar and putting a padlock on it. The deal is it won't stay in the cellar. It mm-hmm. sneaks out. It comes out sideways. And often when it does, it comes out in the very thing we were afraid it would do in the first place. Yeah. So oh my gosh. people who are unwilling to own their clean anger and their clarity of vision at, because they're afraid to you know, be a bully or afraid to you know, overwhelm people and don't get in alignment with all that end up being passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive or, mm-hmm. you know, the very thing they're afraid of starts to get manifested. And you've been one of those people who regularly finds that which you've kind of X'd out of your life and brings it back forward into authentic relationship with you and with people around you. So I, I think what you're talking about is spot on. Okay. I got a question for you. Okay. So imagine a leader is listening to this call and they're going, okay, I'm kind of new to all this. I'm thinking about, you know, getting into conscious leadership myself and and bringing it into my team or my organization, my group. I want you to give them a warning message. (laughs) So it's kind of like, Deb and I have this cottage in northern Michigan right near Sleeping Bear Dunes, which is one of the most beautiful places in the United States. And there's a huge sand dune about 500 feet tall. And when you go into Sleeping Bear State Park, and you get to the dune, there are these signs all over the place that say, warning, do not go down this dune unless you know you can climb back up, meaning you got to mm-hmm. be in some kind of shape and strong, because we are not going to rescue you. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like that. So mm-hmm. having played in this space for many, many years, if somebody were thinking about this, what warning would you give them? I know there are all kinds of reasons to do it and blah, 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 blah but what mm-hmm. warning would you give them? I would say if on some level of your being, you know that you truly are not willing to give up the um, domination, authority, control that you have of other human beings, do not move forward with this work. If you if you want to continue leading from a place of authority and domination, this work will be excruciatingly painful. And quite frankly, just not in alignment. So I, I and and I would say that that I think that is one of the like greatest steps in human evolution. Uh, and I actually think we're being called forward into it right now in this time and space on the planet to really learn to lead where each human being is invited to own their power, their authority, their security, their approval, and stop outsourcing it to other people. The outsourcing of our security, approval, and control creates so much suffering on the planet. That being said, in Mm -hmm. the present paradigm of many organizations, it is the predominant leadership style. So if you're not ready to give that one up, I'd say, pause before entering. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, because you're going to hit a wall, and that wall is going to cause lots of turbulence and mess in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and great. it's confronting to have to move into an environment where your quote-unquote subordinates are uh, empowered <laughs> and are not <laughs> relating to you from a place of fear. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, darn it. I can't, you know, I can't play that card anymore. No, you can't. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lola, so appreciate you. So our our time's about up. Let, let me ask you this. If people wanted to know more about you and what you're up to on the planet, is there a website you could send them to or some way that they could say, oh, you sound like a cool being. I'd like to know what you're up to. Is there some place you could send them? Well, I'd say definitely check out Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, spiritualcenter.org. We actually now live stream our Sunday services. So wherever you are on the planet, you can tune in at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. And they're also recorded and available uh, at any time on demand. So that's one way. And then I've started doing these Facebook Lives uh, from the Bodhi Facebook page. And they're just like six-minute sort of stream of consciousness, daily exploration. Many times they weave in the 15 commitments. And so it's just an easy way to, to connect and to engage. So Bodhi Spiritual Center on Facebook or BodhiSpiritualCenter.org. I love it. All right, my friend. Uh, by the way, gang, it's uh, February 17th and it's 62 degrees and sunny in Chicago. <laughs> it's a uh, Friday afternoon that we're doing this. So I want to get off of this recording and go walk around the block. Mm -hmm. And I imagine you're going to go jump in your yard or something. Yes, sir. (laughs) All right, Lola, you take care and goodbye, everybody. Thanks, Jim.